Hi, this is Looking Back, a program where I'll be remembering highlights, low points, adventures, and lessons learned over my first 75 years. I'm Robert Harmon, and I'll be looking back fondly at an often unplanned yet grateful life. I hope you'll join me. I'm calling this episode Writing and Rationing. It's about how those two things intersected and influenced my early years of education. It's also about how words are seemingly becoming rationed in everyday communications. It feels sad to say, but I don't have much memory of learning to write or what the original process entailed. So although I only have a vague memory of the process, I do remember using a stylus and a slate board, plus a small cloth to wipe it clean. Slates were commonly used in schools throughout the 18th and 19th century and grew less common in the 20th. So when I think about writing, I like the notion of having come from the Stone Age to the digital age during my lifetime. When I started school in 1951, Britain was an extremely impoverished country. With its Soviet and American allies, Britain ended up victorious in World War II, but the financial cost was devastating and long-lasting. By the early 1950s, while the post-World War II U.S. economy boomed, Britons did not. Britain's post-war debt to the U.S. amounted to over $20 billion and wasn't fully repaid until 1962, and the country remained a land of shortages well into the 1950s. In Britain, the 1950s was a time when many things were rationed, while Dinah Shore was singing and encouraging folks to see the USA in your Chevrolet, my mother, grandmother, and pretty much everyone else was going shopping with the ration cards. All meat, eggs, cheese, sugar, vegetables were in short supply, and people couldn't purchase essentials beyond their allotted weekly amount. Many other goods were also in short supply, including petrol, what they call gasoline here, and furniture, to name but a couple. I've always suspected the reason I wrote on a slate during my early school years was because paper was also in short supply. Even though there was a widespread hardship in the country, there was still an opportunity for a nationwide feel-good splurge that couldn't be passed up. On June 2nd, 1953, Queen Elizabeth II was crowned 
and every school child got a commemorative elongated tin filled with Cadbury's chocolates. How very generous of the government of a country with a royal family that literally owned and still controls one-sixth of the Earth's landmass, 53 countries. I kid you not. Anyway, the tin can came in handy as a pencil case, and I used my one until I lost it somewhere on the path through childhood. I was seven when my sister Veronica turned five, and we both started attending St. Peter's School. It was good to get away from the convent school where I'd been for two years. Those nuns had been creepy black-clad figures, and as teachers ruled us kids with an iron fist and hardly an ounce of kindness or humour. At the new school, there was paper and pencils and somewhat kinder teachers. I liked all that. At that age, lots of emphasis was placed on learning cursive, and that entailed much repetition until you got your writing to look at least legible. The class in school where we only ever used a pencil was arithmetic. I used to get into trouble for just writing down the answers. The teacher always wanted all the working to be shown, but I found it easier and quicker for me to just do it in my head and write down the answer. They wanted proof of comprehension for some reason. Averaging well over 30 plus kids per class, we all had our own heavy seat and desk combination. Each desk had a small round hole on the front right hand corner. I'd wonder what it was for, but never asked, since my grandmother had trained Veronica and I well with her mantra. Dena spear, dena benosi, which meant don't ask, don't be curious. I think I arrived at the tail end of the children should not be seen and not heard era. Anyway, the mystery of the hall was revealed around age nine or ten when we were introduced to pens, inkwells and blotches. Thank God for blotting paper. Learning to write in ink was somewhat messy to begin with and we always had to remember to go slender on the upstroke and press on the downstroke. We did this over and over, but I didn't mind because I liked my writing to look good. As I look back, I realize I was so eager to please. It's embarrassing. It's also the case that there was an artistry to ink writing that had lots of appeal to me, especially when I didn't get an unexpected blob of ink on the page. Around 11, my uncle Magnus moved back from the United States to Aberdeen. I remember once he came to visit his brother, my dad. He showed us a new piece of writing magic called the ballpoint pen. No dipping for ink, no cartridges. It was a self-contained writing implement. I immediately wanted one. However, when ballpoint pens or biros as we call them, started to become more common, they were banned in school. Probably they were seen as too modern or too convenient. Or maybe it was because we couldn't make that fancy cursive writing with them. 
Sometimes we hated teachers and their seemingly stupid rules. At that point in time, you couldn't ask why in class. Depending on the teacher, a question could be seen as impertinence, and you might get belted for that. For much of my time in school, there was always this element of fear hanging over the classroom. Most teachers had this three-foot-long, two-inch-wide, stiff leather belt, which they could and did use. It was unbelievably painful, especially if you were unlucky enough to get six of the best, as they said, on your outstretched, crossed hands. This violence and cruelty to kids lasted in Scottish schools until 1987. It was a punishment equally popular with teachers and parents and was eventually banned, not because of local lobbying, but from a judgment by the European Court of Human Rights. If it hadn't been for the UK joining the European Union, school kids might still be getting thrashed. I got belted a few times and it never seemed fair and it really stung for a long time. You had to try really hard not to shed a tear or two. By the time I was 13, I had a newspaper delivery job before and after school. This wasn't my first job. At age 10, before school, I had started helping the bakery van deliver morning Aberdeen rolls, a sort of squished, flaky, buttery Scottish croissant, or a rowie as we called it. Half a fine, half a popular, which means very tasty and very popular. Everybody loved the rowie money. At the weekend, after the rowie deliveries, I'd become the butcher van boy. I liked working, even though I was paid next to nothing. I made about two pounds a week, which is like three dollars maybe, for morning and afternoon, Monday to Saturday, paper deliveries. That was in the late 1950s, early 60s. That's probably worth about $15 today. Yes, I was underpaid, but I always thought that some money was better than none. And with it, I bought myself a fountain pen and later a retractable pencil for my favorite class, technical or mechanical drawing. That's when I truly loved school, measuring and drawing on a draft board blissfully unaware of something called architecture. Oh well, too late now. It was the Sumerians who started all this writing behavior, using cuneiform on clay tablets to record information necessary for Hammurabi's organized kingdom. The Egyptians invented reed pens made from hollow bamboo, which they used on papyrus, starting about 2000 BC. By 600 AD, some bright spark found a use for goose and turkey feathers and invented the quill and the always handy and sharp pen knife. No birds died in the furtherance of man's need to write, record and keep empires organized since the feathers were yanked from their living bodies. What do you want, quill or death? Let me think about it, said the goose. In the 1820s, the first machine-made steel nib pens were manufactured in England, 
and were cheaper and sturdier than quills. Thank goodness, said the geese and the turkeys, not knowing just how popular Thanksgiving dinner was to become in America's future. When Laszlo Biro invented the ballpoint pen in the 1930s, the British government bought the manufacturing rights. It would be nice to think that they did so for the benefit of young school kids, but as we now know, that wasn't the case. Rather, it was to enable pilots to write while flying at altitude, since fountain pens were just a bloody mess and useless high in the sky. At 17, I went to England to undergo five days of tests and see if I'd qualify to become a Royal Air Force pilot. I passed the first three days of test, but got snookered on the fourth. They said it was my imperfect hearing, but I never had a problem in that area. If anything, I'd say it was my speech and my working class background that disqualified me from becoming officer material. But maybe not. There were 30 of us young wannabes, and I was the only raggedy R. Scott. I was so intimidated by the others and their posh BBC pronunciations, plus their knowing the order of use of all the silverware in front of us at mealtimes. I'd never seen so much hardware at a table setting. In my uncomfortable awkwardness, it looked like everybody had about 10 spoons of various sizes, countless forks of different sizes and times, plus enough knives to start a small war. I won't even start on the immense assortment of plates. I simply watched and acted accordingly, opening my mouth only to eat. I was learning my place in this grand scheme of things, unaware that the empire was in a slow decline while those in charge pretended otherwise. Today, it is those same folks in South Britain, mainly Brexiters, who still seemingly regard Europe as a small island off the coast of England. As the race to space accelerated, it was soon realized by NASA that quills, fountain pens, and Mr. Byro's ballpoint pen were not going to work in the vacuum of space, and so proceeded to waste millions of dollars on developing a space pen, while the Russians used the ever-popular and much cheaper pencil. It's a great story and loads of laughs, but totally false. A space pen was developed by the US, by the Fisher Pen Company, and in 1968 was first used in the Apollo 7 mission. This pen proved to be so reliable that the Russians bought them for their space flights. That was long ago, and today we have the ubiquitous felt-tip marker pen, which can write anywhere on pretty much anything, just like cans of spray paint can also do. I started off saying that in learning to write on a slate, I felt like I'd come from the Stone Age to the Digital Age in under a lifetime. Sitting here at my MacBook Air, pecking away at the keyboard, I'm not using any writing implement, 
just my own digits on a keyboard. And I also recall the first time I saw Egyptian hieroglyphics and wondering what it was below them, only to be told that they were lorographics. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. Anyway, I've long been fascinated by the Egyptian picture words and how they must have evolved, their phoneticism and how they were used. They seem so far away and distant from our 26-letter alphabet used in our modern technological world, but I'm realizing I'm wrong. I know little about emojis, but I see them everywhere online these days. It's as if our culture is reverting back to pictograms. It's been said that a picture is worth a thousand words, and as we race through this century into whatever future we have, the emojis seem to indicate a need for haste, a need for swift communication that prevents us from stopping to sit down and write patiently, poetically, about how much we love our beloved, how sad we are at half a million people dying from COVID, or how happy we are to be alive and to thoughtfully and expressively share that joy. It's as if we want to ration words, thoughts, and ideas with our convenient use of emoji pictographs. Thank God those people who wrote during the 19th century didn't use emojis. Ken Burns' Civil War documentary would have been so much less profound and impactful had they done so. Just a thought. This has been a Sauna Sound Studio production with support from all the little bees up in the trees, folks who sneeze and bend their knees, with the cat's meow and the dog's bow wow in old time Indiana.